Hi, good morning. Um, my name is Kristen Gugisberg. Um, my husband is Grant, the handsome bass player today. Uh, we have four kids, ages nine to two, um, and we've been coming to faith uh, for about 12 years now. So in that time, we've been connected to a really awesome life group, and we've also volunteered off and on down in the preschool wing. So that's where you might have seen us. Today, I will be reading Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 23. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is God's word. Thank you, Kristen, and uh, it's great to see all of you here with us today. Before we turn to the Word, please join me in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come this morning to the throne of grace, and we do acknowledge that it is a throne. You are the King, you reign, you have all power and all authority, and uh, we, we thank you that it's a throne of grace, that we don't have to barter, we don't have to purchase anything, you freely, gladly give good gifts. You're our Father. You're a good shepherd. And we come in Jesus' name. He is our high priest. He's our advocate. We don't come in our own righteousness. We come in, in his. So we come in Jesus' name to the throne of grace. And we pray this morning for this church. We pray, God, for our, our spiritual health. We pray that we might pursue deep discipleship, that we would seek to follow you in every area of our lives we confess, Father, that sometimes we hold back an area or two, and we say, God, you can have most of my life, but here are some things I want to hang on to. And God, we just in our more lucid moments like now, we just, just confess that that is wrong, that you are Lord and that you deserve uh, all of us. We have been 
bought with a price. We should glorify you with our bodies. And so, Father, we, we uh, just say, teach us to have deep discipleship. We pray in this church we would have deep spiritual friendships across all the generations, from the youngest of us to the oldest of us. We pray, God, that our relationships would be healing and nourishing and life-giving. We pray, God, that we would be a community that welcomes people who are seeking you, people who are new to the faith, people who have walked with you for a very long time. And we ask, God, that by your grace we would pursue heart-level unity, that what we have in common in Christ and uh, our identity in Christ, that that would be enough and that we would, on a, on a heart level, uh, live with one another in peace and be zealous for the unity that the Spirit gives us. We pray, God, that we would have a common love for one another. We pray we'd be eager to reconcile when there are conflicts, eager to forgive one another. God, we pray for those in our midst who are hurting. Uh, perhaps it's a marriage. Perhaps it's hurting because of parenting woes. Perhaps it's an illness. Some in our midst are grieving. Some are lonely. And so, God, we pray for relief directly from you. We also pray that we as the body of Christ would, would uh, represent you well and we would live out uh, the things we're called to do, that we would really uh, be used by you deeply in the lives of each other when we're hurting. And God, as we go out this week, we pray that as we go into our places of work, the main thing we do, whether we get paid for it or not, we pray that we would do, do our work heartily unto you. We pray that we would, would see our work as a, a way to glorify you, to do good works, to uh, promote the, the flourishing of our city. We pray, God, that, that uh, you would remind us of that in the midst of our weeks and when, when work gets hard and long. And Father, we pray that our homes would be places of peace and rest and blessing. We pray, God, that our neighborhoods would be places where we, we love our neighbors and where we, we uh, really uh, enter in and we allow you to use us in deep ways. God, this morning as we look at Acts 14 and, and the issue of suffering, we uh, just say that it's a hard subject and we need your grace, we need your, your light. We pray, God, that we would have a deep experience with your word, that we would let the word occupy the deepest places of our hearts, that we would be convinced on a heart level of the things we're talking about here today. Give us a vision for suffering well. Give us the will to be doers of the word. And so, God, we're asking for, for a lot here today, and we trust that you, by your spirit, will supply. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, years ago, I, I came across a saying that I found very, find very <clears throat> helpful when it comes to following Christ. And here's the saying. It says, what you win someone with is what you win them to. What you win someone with is what you win someone to. And so if you, if you uh, begin following Christ because someone told you, if you follow Christ, your life will be easier, if that's what you're one with, then that's what you will be committed to, basically, an easy life. And when your Christian life gets hard, not if, but when it gets hard, you might back up and say, whoa, wait a minute, I did not sign up for this. And you begin backing away from this commitment to Christ. 
You know, if you read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus never promised anybody, if you follow me, your life will be easier. As a matter of fact, he said the opposite. He said that in many ways, your life will get harder. People said, Jesus said, people are going to treat you the way they treated me. If they hate me and you're my follower, they will hate you as well. In Matthew 5.11, Jesus actually said that if you uh, follow me and if you live for my name, people will insult you, they will uh, slander you, and they will lie about you. They will say all sorts of evil against, against you on account of me. And Jesus said, this is not the worst thing. Actually, rejoice and be glad. You're in good company. This is the way they treated the prophets before you. And so this is a very different way of thinking about following Christ. He actually called people to suffer as he suffered. And so following Christ is a good life. It's actually the best life that you can live, given that this is a fallen world. But it's also a hard life. And today's passage illustrates how clearly and deeply Paul understood his calling to suffer for Christ. And it also describes how, Jesus, how, how Paul's conviction is that this life of suffering is something every disciple is called to. Not just an elite few, but everyone. And so that's why he prepared the church to suffer well. And so I trust that this account will give us understanding not only of our calling to suffer, but also the need to prepare for that life as well. If you've been with us in this this series, you may remember what happened last week in Acts 13. At the end of Acts 13, uh, Paul and Barnabas were driven out of the city of Antioch by an angry crowd. Chapter 14 begins with Paul and Barnabas fleeing from the city of Iconium because they heard about a plot to kill them. The passage we're going to look at today describes how Paul and Barnabas were persecuted in the town of Lystra. So first we see our calling to suffer for Christ in verses 8 through 20. Beginning in in verse 8, Luke tells rather matter-of-factly how a man lame lame from birth was healed by Paul when he saw that this man had faith. Verse 8, now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And this account is very reminiscent of the account in Acts 3, where Peter healed a man in a similar situation. And in both cases, Paul or Peter and Paul, they both looked intently at the man. In both cases, they commanded the man to stand up and walk. And the similarities between these accounts suggest that Paul was operating in the same power of the Holy Spirit that Peter was before him and the power that Jesus operated under before them. The reaction of the crowd reveals that the way they looked at the world was about as different from that of Paul and Barnabas as you can imagine. In their worldview, their mythology told them that the gods sometimes become men, they take on human form and they do miraculous things like what Paul had just done. And so here's the reaction in verse 11. And when the crowd, this this is wild, okay? When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices 
saying in Lycaonian, which is their native tongue, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. What's going on here is probably that Barnabas was probably older, and he was probably viewed as the leader, and so they called him Zeus. He was the head of the gods, and since Paul was the one who spoke, they viewed him as Hermes. He was the messenger of the god, the god who brought messages uh, on behalf of the gods. And since the crowd was speaking in their, their local language, it's likely that Paul and Barnabas had no idea what they were talking about, but their intention became very clear when the priest of Zeus showed up and wanted to offer sacrifices. So verse 13, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, he brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. And so the custom was put the garland around the ox's, oxen's you know, uh, neck and parade it around, take it to the temple and slaughter it. And when Paul and Barnabas saw what they were planning on doing, I mean, they reacted almost violently. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. That was a sign that a blasphemy against God had occurred. And they rushed out into the crowd and they cried out. The last thing they wanted was to be worshipped. They had come so that these, these people from Lystra would worship Jesus. And in verses 15 through 17, we have the first example in the book of Acts of how the apostles, uh, how they, they spoke to people who were basically pagans, is what we would, would say. We'll see it again in Acts 17 when they talk to the people in, in Athens. Uh, but we've already seen examples of how Peter and Paul and Philip addressed Jews and God-fearing Greeks. But here they were talking to people who did not have the commonality, who did not believe that there was actually one true living God who had created everyone and everything. And so that's where Paul begins. He's not even going to be able to get to talking about Jesus. He begins by talking about God as the creator. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news <clears throat> that you should turn from these vain things like worshiping Zeus and Hermes and turn to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul tells them, stop worshiping the creation worship the creator. And the premise is if you don't believe there is a creator over everything, then you, you, won't have, you won't feel any need or any obligation to submit to him. If God is your creator, then there's an accountability to him. He has a say in your life as your creator. In verse 16, he says, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. And so Israel had her God, Yahweh, the, the creator God, but all the nations had their gods. And in the past, God was not actively seeking them out the way he was after the death and resurrection of Christ. After the death and resurrection of Christ, he sent his people to be witnesses to the nations. But before that, it's not that he didn't care about them, but there was a sense in which he said, you have your gods. See how that works out. At the same time, he says in verse 17, he had not been silent. To the contrary, 
his creation had been a witness to them. <clears throat> he says in verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And so God's goodness was on display in creation. If you have rain for your crops, that's the goodness of God. If you have food to eat, that is the goodness of God. If your heart is satisfied and glad with these good gifts, that is the goodness of God. Well, verse 18 suggests that the, the crowds weren't completely convinced by what Paul had said. <clears throat> Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. They barely kept them back from this impulse to uh, offer sacrifices. But what we read next is that the, the same people who had persecuted Paul in Antioch and Iconium, <clears throat> they came there to Lystra, and they tried to inflame the crowd to uh, reject them, to persecute them. And just as Paul had been one who, <clears throat> who followed Christians to track them down, to arrest them, to shut down this message, now there were people who were trying to do the exact same thing to Paul. Now, I need to say this. Uh, this is not karma, okay? This is not what goes around comes around. And this is not God punishing Paul. Well, you persecuted Christians, so now that you're a Christian, you're going to be persecuted. Now, this is simply the reality of persecution in every generation, in every culture. And so there is opposition to the God down through the ages. And so in verse 19 we read, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Isn't that fantastic that they would one, one time, uh, they wanted to worship Paul, but now they wanted to kill Paul. It may be that they were so persuadable because Paul had rejected their worship. They thought they were being generous by worshiping him. Paul said, no, actually, you're being idolatrous by worshiping me. You should put those things away and worship the one true living God. Whatever the case, uh, they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Equally fantastic is what we read next. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And so as we see in the rest of the passage, even though Paul was stoned and left for dead, he didn't view that, view that as a deal breaker in his relationship with God. He didn't shake his fist at heaven and say, how dare you? I'm down here serving you. And this is how I get treated? How dare you not protect me here? He didn't say that. No, like the apostles before him, like Jesus before them, he entrusted himself to God. He didn't see any contradiction between him suffering persecution and the goodness of God. He didn't see any contradiction there. And so he got up, he recovered, and he continued his assignment as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul understood that suffering was part of his calling in Christ. And why was that? Well, we saw it back in, in Acts chapter 9 
Paul's on the road to Damascus. God appeared to Jesus, appeared to him, blinded him. And at the same time, or very shortly thereafter, Jesus also appeared to a man named Ananias, who was a believer. And he said, Ananias, go and talk to Paul and pray for him. And when Ananias showed reluctance and fear, this is what Jesus said to him. This is Acts 9, 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then he says this, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. From day one, Paul understood that part of his calling, not his entire calling, but part of his calling as an apostle, as apostle to the Gentiles, was to suffer for his name. And so it wasn't meaningless uh, suffering. It was purposeful suffering. It was suffering that would have consequences for time and for eternity. And what's truly amazing is by the time you get to Philippians chapter 3, Paul would write that he wanted to know Jesus so exhaustively that he not only wanted to know the power of Jesus' resurrection, but that he also wanted to know the fellowship of his suffering. He wanted to have this commonality with Jesus. He wanted to to suffer in the same manner that Jesus suffered. And we read that, and I ask the question, I mean, who, who wants that? Who says that? Who gets to the place where they want to know Jesus that exhaustively that they would want to suffer with him? Well, one answer is the type of people who sing the songs that we sing on Sunday morning. He is, he's the king. He's reigning. He's coming back, and we will enjoy him for eternity. If you believe that, and say, okay, he is worth suffering for. He is worth everything in my life. And so 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said he just never got over the fact that Jesus died for him as a sinner. He said, he died for me, therefore I will live for him, whatever the cost. And so Paul understood, he accepted this calling to suffer for Christ. And so my my question for us is, have we? Have we accepted this calling? Do we accept that if we are disciples of Christ, that we are also called to suffer for him? It's just part and parcel of our calling. Do we believe that? And that's a hard question to answer because we don't experience the same type of persecution that Paul did. I mean, I don't, I don't get up in the morning and, and wonder, is this the day? Is this the day when an angry crowd is going to stone me and leave me for dead somewhere? We don't, don't fear that. And so, and so how do we get at this question? Are we, are we really accepting this calling to suffer for Christ? Well, here's a couple of ideas. First of all, notice how offendable you are in general. Honestly, just in general, your everyday life, how offendable are you? Notice how easily you're offended or agitated or angry in everyday life. Notice if your instinct is to take revenge, to think horrible thoughts about people, to say things to people, to put them in their place, to do things that show that you're not going to take this. You know, I pay attention. I could, a couple of weeks ago, I was driving from my house 
to come to work here at Faith, and I didn't get two blocks before I was offended twice. I live like, I live like a half a block from the world's smallest roundabout, and so I'm coming up to this, and, and I'm, a, I'm a perfect driver, you need to understand, and I come in, I'm coming up, and this person, they just, they didn't yield the way they were supposed to, and I come up to the Seth child, and I'm looking, trying, and somebody pulls in front of me, and blocks my view, so I'm outraged twice in two blocks. I'm like, that's a bad sign. There's something in my heart that just doesn't want to take it. I don't want to tell you, and that's a bad sign if I'm not willing to, to suffer just the common inconveniences of life on this planet. Am I really ready to sacrifice and suffer for Christ? And so that's my second question. What type of risks are you willing to take in following Christ? I mean, what type of risks are you willing to take in sharing Christ with other people? Do you have this, this fear, I shouldn't mention the name of Jesus because people might be offended, even though it's the good news, it's the best news. Or am I I'm afraid when somebody asks me, what, is, what do you actually believe about, fill in the blank, some area of morality? What do you believe about heaven and hell? I mean, are we willing to take risks for the cause of Christ? So again, I would just encourage you to take... Uh, notice these things in coming weeks. I've become convinced uh, there's this quirky, funny little book called Unoffendable. I've become convinced that, that Christians should be the least offendable people on the planet. And that will help our witness. It won't make us weak. It will give us courage, actually. We'll come to verses 21 through 23, and, and we we see the, the point that we need to prepare to suffer for Christ. And what Luke records in these verses is very significant. He tells us what Paul and Barnabas did after Paul had been stoned and left for dead. What they did was they retraced their steps to these cities where people had believed, and they prepared them to suffer the way they had suffered. And these were people who had seen firsthand how Paul and Barnabas had been mistreated and run out of these towns. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, to Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And then verse 22, we see three things that Paul and Barnabas emphasized. First of all, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. They understood that souls, instead of remaining strong, they can become weak and that people's resolve can fade. So the pattern was to go back and strengthen them in their, uh, in their souls. And we're not told exactly what they did, but likely they were praying with them. They were praying for them. They were sharing the word. They were encouraging them to remain faithful. Second, they were encouraging them to continue in the, in the faith. Paul knew that people can lose, lose courage and abandon the faith. And so they encouraged them to continue in the faith, just like they were doing in the midst of opposition. And then finally, they were saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so Paul didn't view himself as the rare exception. Well, I'm an apostle, so of course I'm suffering. But you, no, he said, he said it's with much tribulation that every disciple enters the kingdom of heaven or, or the kingdom. And he's talking there about uh, entering the kingdom after we leave this life or when Christ returns. And our tribulations could be any number of things as, as Christ. If you're pursuing holiness, 
If you are battling against sin, or as Paul says in Romans 8, if you are trying to mortify, put to death the deeds of the body, you're in a battle. You have an enemy who wants to take you down. He didn't want to just annoy you. He wants you to, he wants you to, to, to get to the place where you give up your faith. You want to give up your life, okay? So you will experience tribulation. And there's, this, there's a certain weightiness, there's a certain sacrifice and suffering that comes from these assignments that God gives us, even in the body of Christ. If you're committed to serving other people, you will suffer at the hands of other Christians and just suffer because it's hard sometimes. And then there's the suffering that comes from, from opposition. We're at odds with our culture in so many ways including this basic message about Jesus, that he is uniquely the Son of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Paul was preparing them for this. And the other thing he did to prepare them is to, to order the churches with leadership. Verse 23, he did this everywhere he went. Verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so in light of the, the reality of opposition and tribulation, he knew that they had to be ordered in, uh, in, into communities. And just like young children, all children really need a stable, healthy family. All Christians need a stra- stable, healthy church family, the household of God. Uh, if you are isolated from the body of Christ, I mean, it is highly unlikely that you are going to persevere in the midst of great tribulation. Eventually, you'll just say you'll be isolated, and you'll begin thinking these thoughts, and you will be convinced it's not worth it. And so it doesn't have to be this body of Christ, but, it, but you have to have one because uh, you will be tested severely. And so in that context, community of believers can can prepare themselves to suffer for Christ. And honestly, the church in in America has not done a good job at this. Honestly, I have not done a good job at this as pastor in in this church. But passages like this, the whole book of Acts, I mean, it's pushing us to consider this issue. And toward that end, at the the, uh, bottom of your, your sermon outline in your bulletin, I think there's 11 scriptures that We've listed there. Could have listed many, many more, but these are scriptures that emphasize not just common suffering, but suffering as a follower of Christ. <clears throat> and my challenge is to take the next week, next two weeks, take one or two of these, take one a day, one every other day, whatever you can do, and read it, think about it, pray about it, talk about it with other people. What does this? What does this even mean? And uh, see if God will write that word on your heart, and God will do a deep thing. Those two scriptures in 2 Timothy illustrated in chapter 2, Paul told Timothy flat out, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. If you're a soldier, you're in the army, been in the army, military of some type, you get that in ways that the rest of us don't. You get over to chapter 3, and Paul is talking to Timothy, and he reminds him that Timothy was in these places we've been reading about. Timothy was from Lystra and Derbe. He He said, you have seen the way I was persecuted. You've also seen the way God delivered me. So again, he wasn't focusing on the hardship he had experienced. 
He's focusing on <clears throat> how he lived to tell about it. And in that context, he tells Timothy, all who desire to live in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Have you ever read that and dismissed it? Well, maybe somewhere else, but not us. <clears throat> well, see what God tells you as you study that, as you meditate on it. So take some time over the next week or two. Soak in these scriptures. Let God write it on your heart. <clears throat> Becoming prepared to suffer, it doesn't happen by accident. It really doesn't. <clears throat> there was a, a pastor named Joseph Son, T-S-O-N, in Romania in the 60s and the 70s. And, uh, and that, there was a brutal dictatorship in those days. And he was often arrested and beaten and tortured. And on one occasion, uh, an interrogator put a gun to his head. And he said, renounce your faith in Christ. <clears throat> and Pastor Son looked him in the eye and he said, your greatest weapon is to kill me. My greatest weapon is to die. He said, because if you make me a martyr, there are scores of Christians who will be raised up to take my place. And they will continue carrying this message about Jesus to the people. See, there's a man, he understood he had a calling to suffer. He didn't shy away from it. And, and I'm sure he prepared for it. Again, that doesn't happen by accident. But it was true of him. It was true of the apostles. It was true of Jesus. It was true of the prophets. May it be true of us as well. And so, Father, we bring ourselves before you. We present our souls to you. And you know... Our fears, our anxieties, you know, our doubts and unbelief. God, we invite you by your spirit to teach us, to change us, to form us deeply by the word. And so we ask that that would happen on this, this issue of suffering for Christ. God, we thank you that you are strong and that uh, you notice everything about our lives. And you know the details, you know our circumstances. And so it's with great confidence that we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.